and so if you if you become really really good friends with people who happen to be really driven then you find yourself three four five six years out of business school surrounded with incredible people who work in incredible companies and incredible roles and so when we left and we'll get to that eventually we left the company that bought us to start another company like the first thing i did was tell my friend literally my friends from class in business school hey i'm starting another company by now they had all become investors and said okay great i run a fund like what do you want to raise who do you want to raise from how can i help so here's the big question have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money i've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have a special guest here today. I have Nicholas, Nicholas Henriksen, and I want to make sure I get that right because he co-founded a company called Carlipso uh, after coming out of Stanford Business School. He went through this amazing thing called Y Combinator that I want to, we're going to dig into, uh, did venture capital funding, and actually uh, realized the dream and, and went ahead and he sold that company to Carvana which went on to be a $25 billion company. And so I, we're gonna dig into that a little bit, but he's a serial entrepreneur as well. And it's got a really cool new project that they're working on. But uh, I wanna say welcome to the show, Nicholas. Cody, thanks for having me, appreciate um, it. Well, listen, man, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, as I bring on people that are very high achievers, um, generally we have a different way of kind of seeing the world, right? And, and I want to pick your brain about that a little bit. And so could you kind of talk to me about how you got into Stanford Business School and then sure. we're going to hop in and then where you got, like how you formulated some of your ideas out of there? Sure. Let me just walk you through like the whole story in a couple of sentences and then awesome. I think we'll get to that point. So I was born and raised in Germany originally. My parents... My parents are from Argentina. They moved to Germany. I was born and raised in Germany with my brothers. Used to play on the German golf national team for five years, four or five years. Um, went to college, studied computer science and finance. Did a job. First job was in a renewable energy investment company. We invested in projects in India and China. And then in 2011, I moved to the U.S. to go to business school. And so the, the reason I moved to business school is because I wanted to go into tech. Like I really wanted to be in tech and start a company in tech. Yeah. So um, you mentioned there that uh, you'd gone into computer programming and finance, right? Yeah. When you went into college originally, how did you end up in those fields? Like what was it that you in there? Yeah, good question. So <laughs> you'll laugh about this. I always wanted to be an engineer. Like I love playing with Lego and building things and then taking things apart and then putting them together again. And so I wanted to study engineering, but when, when I was 16, yeah, that was in 99, 2000, the dot com like era happened and so internet companies popped up. I had already been playing around with computers and programmed a little bit in my free time. 
And so what used to be, Germany is all about engineering, German engineering. Yeah. So what used to be engineering and hardware became like the, the sexy thing became software engineering. And so then I said, okay, I'll, instead of being in like the mechanical engineer, electric engineer, I want to be a software engineer. And so that's why I chose software engineering. I, I didn't go to a school that was particularly known for software engineering. I was much more focused on business. And so the, the classes on business were the better ones. And so I ended up doing much more finance and businessy things versus computer science. But I understand it and I understand enough to be dangerous. And I think that helped me down the road. So, um, and the reason I asked that is because part of the show for me, I mean, it's, it's not part of the whole premise is that we don't teach much about finance um, in that whole realm of finance and entrepreneurship in school. Yeah. You know, and at least here in the U.S. we don't. Um, it may be a different experience for you. Um, but when I got into finance in college, uh, my eyes were open to all of the stuff I didn't know. Like that yeah. was the first time I had that, like, oh, I, I now I'm starting to learn. Now I know what I don't know. You know, that, that saying, like, you don't yeah. know what you don't know. Yeah, like I, I was, yeah, I remember sitting yeah, in the finance yeah. class and that was where my passion built that 20 years later, I ended up doing money talkers was because I found out about compound interest and mortgages and all this fun stuff. And so, um, was that similar experience for you? Yeah. So lots of questions and two topics I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship and then, uh, and then finance. Let's start with entrepreneurship because it's easier. I think I really only started learning and understanding it in, in Stanford. So undergrad, I knew it existed. I knew people were starting companies, but Germany was all in that era, all around copying, copying businesses that worked in the U.S. It started okay. with like these brothers copying eBay and then, Airbnb and ringtone companies and then Facebook even. And so entrepreneurship, as I got to know it at first, meant just copy American internet businesses and you'll be rich. <laughs> and so I actually didn't think that was very compelling. Yeah. So let's table that until I had a much better experience at Stanford. Yeah. Uh, let's focus on finance. Finance, I think there's three different versions of finance. There's personal finance, there's investment, and then there's corporate finance. And that's like mergers and acquisition. What we talked most about was mergers and acquisitions in, in school. That's because it was a feeder school into investment banks and M&A boutiques. And so it, that was like what was really sexy at the time and really interesting. Um, the personal finance part is not even taught very well in Germany. Like you, you think it's not taught very well in the US. It's also not taught very well in Germany. The big difference is culturally Germans, and I think that's true for most Europeans, are much more careful around taking on debt and credit cards. Um, and so when, when I moved to the US, I didn't have any credit history because I've never had a loan. I've never had a credit card, <coughs> not because I couldn't afford it, it's just that you don't have it in Germany. And so understanding the impact of credit and personal finance in the, in the American culture taught me a lot of lessons that I wasn't even aware I needed to learn. What were, so, some, what were some of those lessons? Yeah, you'll, you'll laugh about this. So when first thing I did to, when I arrived in the US, I needed a phone. Uh, then I went to AT&T and they said, okay, I need your social security number. I said, I just moved here. I don't have any. Okay, then that means you don't have any credit history. So you can't have a phone. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, well, you can't have a phone if you make a $500 deposit. I'm like, I can do that. But the phone is, it's like a flat rate of $60 a month. Why do you need $500? Like, well, we need some security so we know you'll pay. Like that doesn't make any sense. I've paid all my bills in the past. Yeah, but you don't have any credit. So that was the first incident where I'm like, something doesn't make any any sense here. 
And then a really other really funny anecdote, we, when we were running our business, this, I moved in 11, this was in 14 or 15. Chris, my co-founder, he's a huge car enthusiast. He, he found that Fiat was leasing this little Nissan, uh, this, this um, Fiat 500, this little car as an electric version for $89 a month. That's now less than my phone. I have a better phone. Now. <laughs> um, and so we went in, Chris was done in five minutes, got the car for $89 a month. I sat down, it took 45 minutes. The finance manager comes back and said, congratulations, we got you approved. It's going to be $1,200 a month though. And I'm like, how is that possible? It's like, well, you don't have any credit history. I'm like, well, that's a good thing because that means I've never had a loan. Yeah, but it also means we don't know whether you'll pay back this lease. I'm like, it's $89 for 36 months. Can I just pay that money right now? It's like, no, no. Um, so <laughs> first, my co-founder had to co-sign for me to get this lease for $89 a month. And, and it really showed to me how it showed me how, how important credit is. Yes. Since credit is so important. <clears throat> it's really important that you learn early the implications of using a credit card and making your payments or not making your payments. Um, I think, I think that's a great point. I have actually been sitting. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize like you, you're not just approved for things like there, there's a lot of um, underwriting decisions that go into it where uh, all financing breaks down to about three things it's called ice, right? Cause I've been doing finance 20 years. So I've done, you know, thousand dollar loans up to multi, multi-million dollar loans. And, um, and, and it all comes down to the same three things. It's always income, credit, and equity. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is like the credit portion, if you don't have it right, just like what you're talking about, you'll buy the same thing, but it'll cost you significantly more money. And, it, and it's, uh, it's, it's such a, a lifetime expense if you never yeah. grasp that concept, right? It's, it's, yes, and I would argue it's even worse because if you don't have credit, you can't lend money. So you can't build equity, which also means you're the you're like dependent on your income, which means you need to take jobs that you wouldn't take otherwise. And so it really is like, it's a vicious cycle. That's the downward spiral. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, cause people don't want to, people don't want to learn about credit a lot of times because they think it's this big, scary, uh, messy, you know, thing. And it's like, okay, like if you put your head in the sand, it's not going to help you. Right. No, if, if, no, if you, no, it, it's like anything else, like, but if you run at it, I mean, let's say it took you two hours or three hours of reading like Experian.com and you're like, you just started reading. You're like, Oh, okay. You know, like, or I spent 20 minutes and signed up for like a car, a credit karma. Right. And like, at least you're looking, cause if you're looking at something, you're going to improve it. Yeah. Now it's a business principle, you know, it's a business you. principle, whatever you put a light on shines. Right. And so, um, in that, I and mean, I know it's kind of outside of the story, what we're talking about, but like, it's an important lesson to what you're talking about because your experience coming in, like here's your friend, he's gonna pay $89 a month for at least for the same car that you're gonna pay $200 a month for because you don't have the, the, the um, you, haven't, you haven't built the preparation prior to being there uh, strategically. If you had taken out a couple of credit cards and paid them for six months and then went back, probably gonna have the same experience he has, but yep. because you hadn't, you hadn't become a borrower to borrow you haven't, they're, they're now penalizing you for it. And it exactly. also works the same way if you didn't pay your bills, right? It's even worse, right? Yeah. And, so, and what you said is exactly what happened. I made six payments, six payments of $89. Like that's less than, what is it? It's $534, I think. Yeah. Um, and then I, for fun, ran my own credit application. All of a sudden I was approved for $100,000 for 1.99%. <laughs> you can build credit really quickly. Oh, yeah. Like, and how it works and you, you must not make any mistakes 
Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a four or five piece algorithm basically, you know, but in some of that's history, but like you said, if you start, to, if you, you just looked at it and started to, and you built it within six months yeah. and, and it completely changes your opportunities. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that believes that luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And I recently bought a, a, a real estate opportunity and I was completely afforded the opportunity because I could close on and I had an 800 credit score. So it was, it had to close quick, but I needed somebody who was credit worthy. And so I picked up the opportunity. If somebody else who didn't have that preparation in place had the same opportunity, it goes right by them, Yeah. you know, and, and they don't get lucky, you know, quote unquote lucky. Right. So exactly. You're completely right. <laughs> you're, you're, you're still right. I did happen to do the same thing. We bought a property in, in Phoenix with a bunch of friends. I, I guaranteed the loan rate was ridiculously low because I'm like, yeah, I got credit, nothing to worry about. Yeah. But my friends done the project without me, like what would have, what's now going to hopefully be an incredible return would have been a really difficult project because you always have to worry about these interest payments. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy that, um, the, 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 it's not just on what it costs you, but it's what it, it's the, what uh, the opportunity cost. That's the one I'm exactly. looking for, right? It's yeah. the opportunity cost that you lose, which is what you were talking about earlier about not being able to lend, right. Or not be able yep. to invest because you're, you're paying additional to somebody else who's now, you know, investing in your lending to you and you're paying crazy rates and stuff. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, it's, um, it's really tied to that. And it's an important part of the personal finance world, but I want to get back to your story, um, to where, uh, you know, basically you got, you, you got into, uh, Stanford business school, yep. right. And so, um, did you go there strategically or was that just kind of a, a luck decision? How did you end up going there? What, what was your choice? Yeah, it's, it's the same as you said, lucky, prepared an opportunity. How was that? <laughs> um, no, so a couple of things. First of all, MBA is not a thing that people do in Germany because we used to get diplomas. Like it's the equivalent of a master in undergrad. We just studied a little longer and are focused on a specific subject. So people usually didn't get MBAs. And I knew that if I were going to do that, it would, like for me, that would mean the real reason needs to be something else in like another degree. For me, the, the reason was going to Silicon Valley and figuring out my way into tech. So that was your, that, that was your, your strategy. Exactly. And then in order to get in, you can't plan that overnight. Like that's a little bit the life you've been living. And so thankfully my, my parents always created opportunities for me to play sport or be ambitious and, and taught me that school is important. Similar like credit. If, if your parents teach you the importance of something that doesn't, that doesn't feel like fun in the moment, mm -hmm. um, then it, it pays off. It's like an investment. And so in my case, the second I, or the, the moment I felt ready to apply for business school, I happened to have a lot of stories that resonated with the admissions office. That was the, the golf. That was me not taking the traditional career path to go to banking consulting, but running a risk, going to a startup. And, and then I had decent, decent grades at school. My, my GMAT turned out to be okay too. And so That's, when you got into Stanford, how did you, what, I mean, walk me through like, cause you ended up with a company, right? Through the, through, uh, through a really, really uh, famous startup accelerator. So, um, you know, you obviously didn't show up at school and then they took you right in the accelerator, but like, how did, so how did you, what was the pathway to, to the, um, to the ideation? Yeah. And then also like, what was the, like the actual, you know, um, steps that you took? Yeah. So at Stanford, I was, I spent two years figuring out what is the business I could start? Like I was almost obsessed with, is this a business? Is that a business? Is this a business? Is that a business? And I was disappointed with myself that it, it, 
like I, I, I didn't find anything that I thought was interesting or worthy to explore to make a business because I also didn't know how do you do that? Like nobody teaches you how to start a business, how to find a business idea. And so it took me two years and I feel like it was a learning experience to understand, oh, businesses, you don't have ideas overnight and then you have a business. You really need to have like an area you're passionate around, spend a lot of time, talk to people, figure out what could be valuable. What the problems are, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so I ran and became friends with a guy called Chris, huge car enthusiast, business school classmate and future co-founder. He was obsessed with cars. He loved cars. His first car was a DeLorean, the one from Back to the Future. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's just so much into cars. And since everybody knew that, people started approaching him towards the end of business school asking for advice how to sell a car. And so we were sitting there and all of a sudden more and more people showed up. It's like, hey, Chris, I'm moving to San Francisco. I'm moving to New York. I'm leaving the area. I'm leaving the country. What do I do with my used car? We started giving advice, but quickly noticed that people really wanted us to sell their cars. So we, we sold our classmates' cars, put them on Craigslist, took photos, detailed them, went on test drives. And then towards the end of school and the weeks after, we probably sold somewhere between 50 and 100 cars of our classmates. So quite a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't feel like this was a business. It felt like this is a summer, summer project and just exploration. So I sat down with one of our professors, a person who I respect a lot and I'm incredibly grateful for, told him, hey, I don't know what to do with my life. Should I start a company or should I just work for something else? Chris and I have been selling all these cars so I didn't have a lot of time to think about it. And after an hour, he said, well, I gotta go. The last 55 minutes out of the hour, we, we only talked about how you're selling cars. I think you already made your decision. You should be selling cars. And if we wanna make this a company, here's $50,000 to get started. Really? Yeah, this wow. is Silicon Valley. And then like incredible people you're able to surround yourself with if you're lucky. And so that's how we stumbled into starting a company. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing though, that you spent uh, two years obsessing over how to, how to, what company to start. And you were already, you, you basically had been just doing it as a side hustle and didn't consider yeah, it a business. I, I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't know what, like, what's the bar? Yeah. Like, what, I thought the bar is to have like the perfect idea and customers that the bar is the bar to start a company is just to be passionate about a space or yeah. having an insight. And then you tell people that you're really excited about exploring it. And that's why you have like early stage angel money, seed investors who are like yeah. invest in you. But I needed to understand what that really meant. Yeah. So, so, so that. <laughs> that's amazing. So what did you, so you guys the 50 grand. So what'd you do? Yeah, good question. I caught Chris, told him, hey, we have a huge problem. <laughs> Chris had already signed a job offer. Oh, really? And he was going to start a job four weeks later. And I'm like, we have a problem. Andy wants to invest. Andy Ratcliffe, that's the person I was mentioning. He was the first investor in eBay. He then later on started Benchmark Capital, which became the biggest investor in Uber and Snapchat, amongst others. And then he started Wealthfront, which I sh I'm sure you'll like. Uh, that's a robo-advisor investor. It's a very, very, very impressive person who has proven to have good judgment in the past. All of a sudden Ooh, told us. But he's also the professor at Stanford? Yeah. What a brilliant dude, because he's got all the access to everybody before they get out into the shark, the shark <laughs> tank. What a smart <laughs> move. <laughs> so that's, other people do that. Like he, he really only wants to go back. He give back. He, he, he doesn't need yet another good return. He's very well for himself. No, so, oh, so he did those investments incredible. before, though? Before, oh, yeah, yeah. He, before the before becoming a professor yeah yeah now he, oh. he he went to business school himself then became venture capitalist started his own company learned so much 
That's amazing. And he decided to go back to business school and, and teach one class. It's only one class, two classes, one or two. And where he just shares his experience and all the things that he, he got wrong. And like, yeah, having been in venture capital for 20 years, he's seen a lot and has a lot of lessons that he, he's sharing and giving back to students because the, stu- the school had been very good to him. And so I feel the same way. I love going back. Well, I think, um, I think inherently um, in the entrepreneurial uh, mind and heart that at the core of it, we try to find problems to solve. And I think that helping others to learn the pathway to think to solve problems is ingrained in us. So like the giving back part of it is really, I, I, don't, I don't think it's like a, I don't know. I think it's just part of inside of like that inherent piece to like go out and like break things and change the world and make it better. But I think also part of that is just, it's not always just with business. It's also with like young people that you think you could help to, to, for, to light the fire for them so that they can go out and break things and make the world better. And I agree with that. You know, one of, one of the things with money talkers, one of my biggest kind of passions around it that I don't talk about enough probably is that, I, I think I want to get this, this information about entrepreneurship and see, let people see that these things are possible is the reasons because when the kids are in school and young school that they don't have life's worry or barriers yet. Right. Yeah. And so they can see problem and they see problems that you're, that you're not conditioned to look past. Right. So like, yeah. as, like you were walking by and going, what am I supposed to solve? What am I supposed to solve? Yeah, right. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah, they they're already know. Like, they're like that, that. They'll just look at me like that sucks. And you're like, well, why don't you fix it? And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, you can make a business fixing that because it sucks. So make it better. You know, I 100% agree with that. So I really feel like they could go out and change the world and make it a better yeah. place by, by, by having this information and, and, and seeing that it's, it's possible. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Another interesting anecdote, which I think is very much down the same line. Um, he, so people think you go to business school for the network, mm-hmm. the network. And so I don't like that expression at all because it doesn't feel like, like I went there for the network. I went there and ended up making some of my best friends. Um, and so if you, if you become really, really good friends with people who happen to be really driven, then you find yourself three, four, five, six years out of business school, surrounded with incredible people who work in incredible companies and incredible roles. And so when we left, and we'll get to that eventually, we left the company that bought us to start another company. Like the first thing I did was tell my friend, literally my friends from class in business school, hey, I'm starting another company by now they had all become investors and said, okay, great. I run a fund. Like, what do you want to raise? Who do you want to raise from? How can I help? And so it's from the outside, it looks like your network, but it's, they're all the same mindset. They're all driven. They all want to make a difference. And uh, obviously you help each other because it's like together you're so much stronger. Yeah. You know, that's a great point because I think of like, uh, like in the, you know, regular kind of business where we talk about going to networking i think of like the local like chamber of commerce events where everyone goes and like just hands yeah. a business card to each other yeah. you know and it's like what can i buy from you what will you buy from me you know type exactly, of thing yeah no this is and, not how business school works <laughs> yeah no <laughs> and so um what you're really doing is you're you're putting into kind of a um a contained area of a bunch of people that are driven and have the mindset to go out to kind of change the world in an area. And so naturally it's going to, you know, cause they say you're the average of your five friends that you hang out with. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so naturally like you talk about, you know, you, you can call your friends because you know, they've done some extraordinary things because you went to a place 
that knowing that you're going to a place where extraordinary people are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, that, that's a great way I, to think. hundred <laughs> percent. I actually, so this is interesting because people ask me, why should I go to a business school? It will cost me $200,000 for two years. And I could, I could, like, I could make so much more money if I stayed at my previous room. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Your math doesn't work. Like you, you can't put in numbers. The fact that you meet your future best friends who are like incredible people and you'll be whatever your expectations are, I believe, like the experience will always exceed those expectations. And so I highly recommend people do it if you can. That's a, that's a, um, that's a great, that's a, that's a different, that's a very different take than, than just looking at black and white and math. And, no, you can't, and, you can't yeah. look at it in the math way. Like, even if I did the math right now, like I'd, I'd be laughing and be like, yeah, that worked out really well. <laughs> that did okay. Um, but yeah, it worked out well. But, um, and I, I would be the first one to admit and to attribute a lot of it to the people I met and the people who encouraged me in business school. But I wouldn't even, like, I would recommend people not look at it in a, like, purely black and white math return on investment type of way because yeah. you, you, don't, you, can't monitor, you can't put in numbers the experience. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like you said, it's, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's almost like an experiment dish, you know, like you're putting everything in there and seeing what comes out, but you're putting in really exactly. good, you're putting in really good ingredients, right? Very you're getting, ingredients. putting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're absolutely right. So, um, so let's, I want to, I want to get more back in your story. And so you, yeah. you, you got, you, you got your uh, partner. He's, he's, uh, he's taking a job. You call him up. You say, Hey, uh, yeah. and he wants to invest with us. And, and what does he want? What, was he like, well, what does he want us to do? Yeah, <laughs> like you know how it's we've been very, selling cars on uh, Craigslist. It's like, yeah, like that's it. Like you know, was that how how'd that? that? That's a little bit how the conversation went. <laughs> I'm like, hey, but it ended it differently. So I'm like, hey, Chris, we have a problem. Like, any things we should make this a business? He's like, sweet. What do you think? I'm like, well, I I guess. But you have a job. It's like, yeah, the job. I really don't want to go to that company. So I'll call them and politely tell them I have this incredible opportunity. So don't worry about that. Do you want, do you want to work with me in this? I'm like, yeah, let's explore where this is going. And so I went over to his place the next day. He, he called the company where he was supposed to start in four weeks, apologized profusely, um, told him there's a very unique opportunity. Um, they just hung up on him. <laughs> he's like okay great that was a good business lesson though right the the culture i'm uh i'm about to not go into that makes sense then they apologize and said yeah that was just a stronger action anyway i think i think he left it on a a very good note and then we we decided to fundraise we we thought we'd raised three three four hundred thousand dollars to explore somehow we still don't know how it ended how it happened ended up with 1.2 million dollars as a seed seed round again mostly from like the stanford ne- network so well, when you say so this this is kind of uh this is where i think a lot of people don't understand like this is a part and not me included like in that in that seating range right so you say we thought yeah. we'd range three or four hundred thousand dollars to explore what do you mean specifically by that yeah so what what is that because you hear that a lot about startup people right it's like yeah. oh we're gonna fund them to go look at an idea like what is that so does that pay salaries is that what does that do yeah good question so and yeah, I apologize that I wasn't more clear. I'm, I'm glad you asked. So what's important to understand is Silicon Valley early stage startup, like really startup, tech startup ecosystems work very differently than, than like your friends and family who want to give you a check for a business in a start. 
the, the economics of these startups are you make 10 investments and maybe one works out. And so that means if you invest, say 50,000, Andy invests 50,000 in 10 founders, nine of them will likely not work out. And that's not because they don't try hard or commit crimes. It's just because the likelihood of one of these businesses to work out is really low. The one that works out, works out so exceptionally though, uh, that it, it'll pay for everyone else. Like one of our classmates is uh, Tony Shi who started DoorDash. Mm. And I'm pretty sure Andy was also kind enough to support him. And so like for all the startups that didn't work out, he had a DoorDash. Yeah. And that pays for every other one. That, again, Andy doesn't do it to make money because he wants to support students really, and he, he did. Yeah. But it, it's a good example of startup investing. Tech startup investing means big portfolio, small amounts. And if it works out, it works out tremendously. And so the, the way you do investment at a very early stage in these tech companies, you, you don't invest in like a patent or an idea. You really invest in the founders because in the beginning you have this conviction that we wanted to sell cars. And then you find while selling cars or oh, the business is actually a different one, mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll fast track to get to a point to, to explain that a little bit further. We, we ran this company for four years. We were selling cars for most of the time. What we ended up selling to Carvana was not an operating business. We sold them software. Software we had built to power our own operations that all of a sudden we realized is much more valuable than the operation itself. Like the software is now something that Carvana was going to develop. And in order to accelerate and, and, and make progress quicker, they said, why build it if we can buy it from these guys and have them run it? And so that would have never happened had we not started selling cars. And yeah. so you really don't know where the journey goes for as long as the only thing you can trust is that the founders will be curious enough to find something, if that makes sense. You're investing in the people, not the product. Exactly, yeah. And we spend very, very, very little money on, on ourselves at first. Like you can't not spend anything on yourself. As yeah. a founder, you, you can't have all your eggs in one basket. You should never invest your own money in your own startup. Um, that's at least what, what we're seeing in the Bay Area. Um, you should just try to get away with as little salary for as long as possible until you find something that works. And then once you raise institutional money from venture capital, then the venture capitalists actually want you to pay yourself a decent salary, relatively good salary. So you're, you, you're, you're willing to take, continue to take big risks and you don't become risk averse. Yeah, that's a that's a big that's a big concept. Um, thinking about that because that's the 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 story of it. To get big, you have to go big, right? Exactly. And the, the so and you I can't think, copy. You can't you can't copy. You got to be different. So you well, got to you got to. Copying gotta, doesn't work. Yeah. Everybody wants. For as long as you have a product and you're in it with all your passion, even people copy you. You'll always be the first one to come up with a new feature because you're just in it for the right yeah. reasons. If people can copy and you can. Yeah, they, they don't know why you built a feature because they don't have the insight. They just know that you did. Now you have to discover all, everything yourself. And that means rediscovering what the purpose of the company is over and over again. Snapchat is actually a really good example. I, I'm not sure whether these numbers are right, but I'm fairly sure something like that happened. Usually when you raise money, the money goes to the company. At some point when you raise your third or fourth round of funding, the investors will offer to the founders to buy some of their shares. And Snapchat became very valuable very quickly. So the founder, Evan, um, and probably some of his team members were able to sell shares for very high valuation relatively early on. And so they, they 
probably, I don't know whether these numbers are right, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were, they became millions in their early 20s and they still had a huge share in the company. And so the reason that was a smart move because that allowed them to be fearless. Yeah. Like it wasn't like all eggs were continued. Yeah, if this thing fails, then we're screwed, right? Exactly. It's just like, they're like, okay, well, we already have, we've got some money. Now let's go out and if, it, if this thing fails, it fails, but let's go out big, right? Is exactly. that kind of the idea? Exactly, and I, I think that's incredibly smart. You need to do it the right way. You can't give founders too much money so they become like... Lazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, you, you need to continue to have the right risk profile in the founders. And uh, Snapchat is a good example because they reinvented themselves multiple times. Well, I think you're probably reevaluating the founders at each stage too, though, right? So, like, you can say, hey, you know, I'm going to give the, the struggling college kid who's super hungry, you know, one round, right? And he's living on this low salary. And you're kind of, I would imagine you're kind of proving yourself the deeper yeah, you're, you're going. Yeah. That you're calling, you're calling out the again, like the guy who gets, you know, half a million dollars, and all of a sudden he starts coming into work for two hours a day, and you know, yeah. thinks he's it's got everything by the tail, right? They're it's pro they're not going to go the next step and to get no, to, and, so, and that happens, and yeah. so there's some funds that are more known for it than others that they're willing and going to replace the founder and put another like a professional executive team and CEO in there. Yeah, it, it happened on kind of like an Uber, right? Exactly. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the case where it happened. I think Uber is not, and Uber, different things happen. <laughs> like at some point, it felt like it hurt the brand that Travis was running. Yeah. In. And Travis went off and did amazing things afterwards. So it, it kind well, of, the thing, yeah. though, is that the, the, the visionary is not necessarily the operator, right? At some that's point, the, the space has to change because happen, yeah. you're not, you can't, like, you can't take a publicly traded company and just go all for it right like you can't because that's the part we're talking about like you got to be giant risk takers yeah at some point you have so much um especially publicly traded companies but you have you have different fiduciary responsibilities Absolutely. people who own the company so you can't go take big risks like that because if you fail at that point it's not good <laughs> like it's yeah. real you know what i mean like you can't like they, they'll just they, that's why they have boards and everything yeah. so i imagine it just begins more and more kind of like pulling you back as the bigger it goes yeah that, right because you're responsible for a lot of employees and investors and employees and just in general brand that, that, yeah for so there's different types of companies there's companies who you need to figure out what to do it becomes big and then a phenomenal operating business and then there's companies like well, i think amazon is a good example google is a good example facebook is a good example who continuously reinvent themselves yeah yeah, that's true. And, and then these guys have so much power and ownership in these companies that a you can't replace them. Like you can't fire Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Yeah. Um, what the guys did at Google, they formed this 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 uh, the structure that they called Alphabet, and so they did that amongst others, so they can continue to run these what felt like crazy experiments. Although the shareholders actually wanted them to just run Google, the core business. And they're like, no, no, there's so much more we can do to protect the core business. But uh, you had exactly the, the misalignment of interests at that point where Sergey and Larry wanted to invest a lot in research and new businesses and the shareholders what? actually 
for it to just milk the search engine. What does Google call that? Is it moonshots or something? What do they call that? They have a name for that whole side. Of, there's an amazing operating company in Google. And then there's like this whole like yeah. black hole of like, let's try all exactly. this crazy stuff on the other side of it. And it, and you know, and I forget, I thought they called it like moonshots or something. Yeah, something like that. And I think the yeah. umbrella is alphabet. Yeah, the umbrella has this like completely black hole of money that just goes away. And, and then they have this other side that's amazing operating company that makes yeah, like exactly. all of the cash. And so they, 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 <laughs> purposefully structured the organization such that, that they can continue to run this experience, which the, sh the stock market usually doesn't reward. It kind of reminds me of like an Elon Musk, like, you know, he's got like the boring company and he's got the Neuralink and he's got all this stuff. And like, he but actually kind of, what's he that? He does it in different companies. Yeah, he does it in different companies. Well, until he bought Solar City into Tesla. And then that was, that's where he got in some hot water because oh, yeah? he took a company that makes cars and bought a solar company you know, trying to mix he, it all together. You happen to own it. both. Yeah, you happen to own both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess it's good if you can do it. But <laughs> so true. tell me this. So um, so now you guys, you went through all your stuff. You got bought out by Carvana. The Carvana just yeah. blew up. I mean, it, it was became the world's or the most uh, valuable uh, used car dealership, right? Yeah, like exactly. Basically. And then so, um, but you left recently, right? Yeah, so real quick, we ran our business for four years. We went through Y Combinator, the startup incubator or accelerator. They helped us grow, 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 but by keeping us accountable, which that was a good experience. Um, then we sold in 2007. It was mainly the software and the team that we sold. And we didn't incorporate the operating business because Carvana had a different structure. It still worked out really, really well. You didn't have any vending machines? Uh, I, we didn't have <laughs> right. I think those things are awesome. There's such a good marketing piece out there. Yeah, so. and their <laughs> operation efficiencies and people talk about it. Yeah. And then in 2020, this year in June, Chris, my co-founder, and I left. And you'll like what we're talking about in a second because we felt the market for auto loans is, is a little bit messed up. People are overpaying on rates. It's exactly as you said. If you, if you get into an auto loan at a not great rate because you had challenged credit, even if you improve your credit, your auto rate, auto loan rate doesn't change, yeah. although it should and could through yeah. refinancing. And that's an opportunity that we want to explore. Yeah. Refinancing is not something that's very talked about in the auto world. Um, and no. there's also, I don't think people understand there's a big bifurcation in rates and financing. It's almost like a, it's like a barbell, right? So you're like, you've got, you've got highly qualified people that get one set of things. And then yep. you have like, not, if you're not that, the other side is way yeah, the other. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, but it's way worse. Like it's, it goes from, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Oh, well you get 0% financing and you get 19%. It's not like yeah. there's not a lot of spectrum in the middle of there. Right. And That's so, true. or yeah. it's, there is, but it's very opaque and it's not, there's not a lot of vis visibility what's going on and to explain exactly what you said. So if you have better than 700 credit score, let's prime, um, your loan goes to a credit union, your auto loan. Credit unions are nonprofits and tax advantages, low cost of capital. So your rates will be one, two, three percent, yeah. really low. If you're not that, you're in the other group, as you said. Yeah, and, and also, I mean that, and that goes that 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 varies so far, yeah. you know. And, and it's it can one of the be things as like high as twenty nine percent, even like auto loan rates can be by law be as high as twenty nine percent in some states. And now imagine you have two people identical income, one had messed up credit in the past the other one was good about like maintaining good credit one person is paying 20 percent, the other one is paying three percent like this guy is barely barely going to make his payments because it's so expensive he'll by the end of the loan he'll have paid for the car twice 
Yeah. Meanwhile, the other person can use that money put in a savings account and build wealth. And so yeah. this is why credit is so important early on in life. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that. And, um, you know, we saw a lot of that in the world in 2011, 12, 13, because of the mortgage crisis and the, and the real estate crisis. Like those things went on people's credit. And because of historically, they said, if you had a foreclosure, you were always in the, in the bad, bad bucket. Right. But there were so many people that went through that, but they didn't change the underwriting terms. So you had a lot of people who had great jobs, down payments, yep. you know, income, everything. Okay. Except for four years ago, there was yeah. this massive systemic like problem of everybody like crashing on it. And what, you know, because uh, one of the things that like, that bothers me the most about not educating kids in the personal finance side of this is that they don't know that. Right. And so what they're going to do is they're gonna, because we don't talk about it in the public sphere, that the only place that you get your information from is generally in the home. And so the kids who come from low income housing that come from bad financial situations to start off with, the only place they're going to get their financial education from is from the people that created the financial problems that they're in now. Yeah, yeah. And I know that um, kind of talking about this is the reason I, because they say, okay, well, you know, this kid A saves up $2,000. His parents gave him a credit card when he was 15 and just put him as an authorized user. So now he has a credit score and he worked for three months and saved up $2,000 and he goes to buy a $10,000 car and he gets a, a 3% interest rate from the credit union. Mm. And then kid B uh, doesn't do those things, right? And he goes down and they say, no, 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 you're declined. So they take him down to the buy here, pay here place. And now he's paying 29% on a $10,000 car. So every year he's paying $3,000 more than the other kid. And yeah. he can't, and it just starts the cycle. Yeah. Right. And it just, and then, and then they don't do any credit checks. They don't care. They're just like, well, if you don't make a payment, we'll just come pick the car up and eat your down payment. You know, and, and if we don't explain those things, then you're always going to have that. I mean, I won't say always, you're much more likely to have the outcome that the kid with the bad financial uh, advice is going to be worse financially off than the kid who got good yeah. financial advice. I a hundred percent agree. We have, when we look at people with challenge credit, we look at two different population sets. One we call um, situationally bad credit or challenge credit. Those are people who had an emergency, medical bills, a divorce, lost their job during a pandemic. And so they used to be good credit, slipped into bad credit. They had the willingness to pay, they just lost the ability to pay in a moment. But that you can rebuild and then you go back and they will go back because people will help them and they have the right attitude. The much harder problem is the behaviorally or chronically subprime challenge credit people because they never receive financial literacy training. And yeah. that, that's the really complicated group, the one you're mentioning, because they're, they're just starting off of a disadvantaged, uh, from a disadvantaged position. And then they dig themselves deeper in the ground because nobody teaches them. Like you don't know that they think credit card is optional to repay. Um, and, and getting out of that hole with having very little education early on is very difficult. And that's why I love what you do. And not understanding that like, you know, a, a $1.50 Gatorade is going to cost you $9 if you're paying minimum payments, right? Yeah, uh, a pizza true. is going to cost you $95 if you buy a $20 pizza and you just pick minimum payments on a credit card, right? Exactly, and so yeah. it's almost, you know, I, I, I like to tell people that like, uh, or actually not tell people, the way that I think about it is that like, you're, you're going to get advice from everyone you ask, right? I don't, yeah. the person doesn't go, well, oh, I haven't done really well for myself. So what you do is go ask somebody who's done well, right? They don't generally say that. It's like, oh no, you know what you gotta do? You gotta do this, right? And so I really think that the outcome financially depends 
on who you accept your advice from, right? So if you hadn't accepted Andy's advice, right? Yeah. And went and two weeks later took a job, you know, because oh, yeah, you were yeah. like, that, like, he was like, no, 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 you got to, you already figured this out. Like you, you, you found someone who has had massive success. And yeah. so when he said that to you, you chose to take advice from a very, very credible source. Right. Yeah. And yeah. even though you probably, you, like you said, you talked to Chris and it's like, I don't know if this is a business, man. <laughs> like, what are we yeah. going to do? Right. So like, but he said, and you decided to take your advice from him. Had you chosen not to, then things come out very differently. Right. Yeah, and yeah, so true. I think that what, why I, why I think that it needs to be at least institutionally taught is at least to give the foundation that there's a different place to get advice from. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't think that you're going to go in and teach personal finance in high school and teach entrepreneurship in high school. And everybody's going to be great at personal finance and everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. Like that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that like, at least you introduce the idea Asian to maybe somebody who doesn't talk about those things. Yeah, right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It, I also am lucky that I got access to, let's say, Andy. Like a lot of people don't even have access to people Pre who understand credit. You prepared for tens of years, man. <laughs> Preparation true. meets opportunity, right? That's your luck. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. Right. But, um, but, but yeah, like in finance and personal finance, you just sometimes like not many people aren't very privileged, privileged, and so that it's hard for them to become lucky even if they try. And so there, I feel, I agree with you. There needs to be some institution that helps them to at least have a chance. Yeah. Like I said, it's not that everybody's going to be great on personal finance and everybody's going to be great in entrepreneurship because they had a class about it in high school, but at least they have a foundation, you know, yep. or at least ask Agreed. ability to ask questions so that they know they have resources to go to for the people that want to seek the information. Yeah, that I, I guess it's, agree with it was the first time I saw compound interest. I was 19 in college and I was like super excited about it. I mean, I was like, Oh my God. Like I was just like, my mind just blew up. And then I just got really mad because I thought about all the kids in high school that and yeah, it can work against you. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh man, I'm like, nobody ever I was like, why didn't we I was like, you know, and I tell people this, like, why did I have a pottery class, man? Like <laughs> you know, like I took calculus two in high school. Like, when am I ever gonna use that? Like I could have used this information, you know, and I was like, yeah. we should have been teaching this. This is the most important thing that you're gonna deal with in life. And it's because you're gonna have no choice whether you have to deal with money or not. Yeah, and so whether true. you're good at it and you practice at it, it'd be like taking you out and, pay, and putting you on the golf course and never having you have a practice, right? Yeah, you're like, go beat, these, go beat these national guys, right? And you're like, because that's what getting out of school and then becoming, going into the, into the workforce and going into yeah. handling money is like, well, we haven't told you anything, but <laughs> go play these guys, right? So, yeah, <laughs> so um, well, listen, man, uh, with what you guys are doing now and getting into this, do you have, have you formulated the company already or have you launched? Have you, is yeah, it something so, out there that people can go and, uh, and, and come and see um, yeah, and, sure. and see if they're, if they're, if something that you guys can help them with? Yeah, of course. I'm glad you're offering that. So the company's called Clutch. The website is withclutch.com. So feel free to go on the website, set about your details. We won't hit your credit. We'll do a soft pull, so it won't hurt your credit. We can assess whether or not you can qualify for a lower rate, and we'll tell you how much you can save. I think that's fantastic, man, because a lot of people just assume that that car payment has to stay the way it is, and you yeah, can refinance, but there's just not a lot of options usually unless it's like a specific credit union or something. So exactly. I think you guys have identified something that is massively needed in the market that's going to really, really help people that have done the right things with their cars and, and re you know, built their credit profiles and done those things. And I think you're going to relieve a lot of capital to people, which is awesome. Man. Congratulations yeah. on, on the Thank idea. You. And I wish you guys the biggest success because that's only going to help uh, a lot of people that could use it. So, 
Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you again, man. I really appreciate you coming on Money Talkers, sharing your story. I've had a good time talking with you and kind of learning about, you know, the journey. Um, and, and I hope that, that uh, people see that it's, it's not, it's, it wasn't all planned out. Right. (laughs) You know, and it was like, yeah, no. And so, but, but you, but you did take, you did take the time to be strategic, to be in the right kind of places, try to be around the right people and, and prepare yourself to be successful because anybody who tells you they're an overnight success is just, that ain't happening. Right. And then when you're talking about someone, I'm talking to somebody who's in Silicon Valley where the, the king of like the overnight success is supposed to have happened, never happened. So these are all overnight successes, 10 years in the making. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, man. Well, thanks again, Nicholas. I appreciate it very much. And uh, thank you for being on money talkers. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of money talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers Community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at The Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker